1 John chapter 1. A couple interesting things about today. Think about it. After, on June 30th, we'll be halfway through the year. One of my elders brought that up a couple weeks ago. And uh, so we're, here we are. We're moving right along. And uh, we really haven't done a book study for quite a while. So beginning today, we're going to be in 1 John through Labor Day. After that, we'll be in Galatians, the study of Galatians, into the end of the year. And uh, so we're, I love getting into uh, particular books of the Bible, and I think you'll enjoy 1 John 1. It's a book of encouragement for us. So I encourage you to take out, take out your notes, if you would. And uh, we're going to talk, first of all, about introduction to 1 John and some fast facts. I think it's really, really important to drill down and get the background and the context and the understanding of this book as it was written in the New Testament time but then to see as we go through it how relevant it is to today. So some fast facts about the book of 1 John. First of all, the title, it's a letter. It's a letter, but not in the traditional sense. There's no introduction, there's no greeting, and there's no conclusion. In fact, it's strange how the book ends in 1 John 5.21, the last verse. It says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So what that does is it clues us in that this was written to Gentiles, to Gentile believers, to keep them away from the idols. We see the author is the Apostle John. John chose to be anonymous in his gospel. He also chose to be anonymous in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But only an apostle, one who traveled with Jesus, would be able to write with unmistakable authority and ask for complete obedience to the teaching of the apostles. John was well known to his readers and didn't need identification. John and James were known as the sons of Zebedee, but because they were characters, Jesus renamed them sons of thunder. So they must have had a lot of fun in them as they gathered and traveled with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, it points out that John was an apostle. It says the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, And Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. As you probably know, Peter, James, and John were the inner circle of leadership for the disciples. And in John 20, 21, it says that John was called the beloved disciple. John was an eyewitness to many, many things in Jesus' ministry. He would have been at the time of this writing the last apostle that was still alive, who saw Jesus and all of his ministry, heard his teaching, watched him die on the cross, and then rise again from the dead. It tells us in John 21, 25, his gospel. Now these are also, there, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Just a martyr. Irenaeus, who was mentored by Polycarp, and John, the apostle, discipled Polycarp, Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius, all early church fathers attributed this book to the authorship of the apostle John. So the date... Well, it was written from Ephesus between 90 and 95 AD, the city of Ephesus, to the churches, not only of Ephesus, but in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. 
John was a pastor of the church at Ephesus for a number of years, and he had oversight of the churches in Asia Minor. It seems from the way 1 John is written that John is now an elderly man. You can, read, you can look at that in 1 John 2.1, 2.18, 2.26. We'll look at 2.1. Notice what he says, my little children. That clues you in that he's older. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John's gospel and letter are very similar in their style of writing. 1 John was probably written shortly after the Gospel of John. And so in trying to pinpoint the date of 1 John, it was written before the persecution under the emperor Domitian, 95 AD, because there's no mention of that persecution in his book. So the theme of the book is how to live in genuine fellowship with our Heavenly Father. That's what he's going to keep coming back to over and over again, fellowship with the Heavenly Father and also with one another. We see the purpose of the book is to describe genuine salvation. He wants to declare, proclaim, and make it clear what a true believer in Jesus Christ looks like and and the relationship they have with their Heavenly Father and with other believers in Christ. He also wants to call out false teaching as part of this book, as you'll see. The key word that's used 37 different times is the word knowing, knowing. And that's key because it's not just head knowledge. That Greek word gnosko is really about experiencing it and making it part of yourself, your inner being. And so you're going to see that word knowing repeatedly throughout this book. The key verse is 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I love that verse. On October 7th, 1972, when I prayed to receive Christ at nine o'clock at night. And after I did, this was the first verse that was given to me for the assurance of my salvation. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have the relationship with God if you believe in Jesus Christ. The outline of the book, you see the opening. We're going to look at that in just a minute. The basic principles for fellowship, the three assurances of salvation displayed, how it was described, and then delineated, and then we'll see the closing, the closing of this book. So the background and the setting of this book, as mentioned before, John was the pastor of the church of Ephesus as he wrote this letter. And Ephesus was a very intellectual center of that time in Asia Minor. People came and went for business practices. Sometimes they came in to worship idols there in Ephesus. And so as they came in, they would gather and they would meet and they would talk and they would share different thoughts and philosophies and religions. We see that in Acts 19.10. The Apostle Paul says, as he was there ministering, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. As Paul was planting the church in Ephesus and discipling elders, he was reaching people not just from Ephesus, but in the other parts of Asia Minor. And as they came to faith in Christ, they went back to where they were and churches were planted in Asia Minor. If you remember in Acts 20, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that false teachers would rise among their ranks and pervert the fundamental teachings of the apostles. In the first three centuries, there were several attacks of false teaching on the church. Here's three of them. Marcionism was the first one. Not in any order. These, some of these ran concurrently, but Marcionism. And Marcion 
around 160 of the Common Era or AD, teaches there are two gods. A creator god of the Jews presented in the Old Testament and a separate god, the spirit god, the father of Jesus. The spirit god sent Jesus to save humanity from that bad, evil, wicked Jewish god of the Old Testament who liked to kill people. And Marcion contrasts Jewish God's rigid legalism with the Christian's God of love, mercy, and forgiveness. Marcion rejects the Old Testament as scripture and most of the New Testament because it was a distorted message of who Jesus was. And so Marcion was excommunicated from the church in 144 AD. Church begins to form a written version of the Bible to refute Marcion's claims. And Marcion's rival church survives decades and ideas even survive today from Marcionism. Another thing they had to combat was Montanism. Montanus, who was born in the mid-second century, teaches against organized Christianity. Spirit moves freely among Christians who speak in tongues and prophesy. And basically, you don't need doctrine, you don't need leaders, you don't need rules It's just let the Spirit lead you and do whatever you want. They emphasize that the end of the world was coming soon. But then the third one, which is what John was getting ready to address, it just was having its beginnings, was Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And John may be beginning to address that as it was starting to take root, though it's not clearly identified in his book. And what is Gnosticism? Well, its material universe is controlled by evil forces. Only the spirit, only the inner person is divine, that each one of us have a divine spirit or spark from an unknown spirit God. And that spark enables humans to recognize evils of the material world. Our redeemer has to come from an unknown spirit God to give human souls the secret of escape from this material world. Thus, they have a secret truth. And Jesus, the redeemer, cannot really be human in the flesh because the flesh is evil, so he has to be pure in the spirit. Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't really. And Jesus' life and public teachings, according to the Gnostics, mattered little, his death and resurrection. The secret Jesus brought really was the secret teachings on the soul's method of escape from this material world. That's what mattered the most. There's two schools of thought within Gnosticism. Docetism, Gnosticism, Jesus' physical body only seemed real. It couldn't have been real because the material world is evil, only his inner spirit. But then there was the Serinthian Gnostics, and they believed in the teachings of Serinthus. Jesus was divine when the Holy Spirit came on him when he was baptized by John the Baptist. And then the Holy Spirit left him just before he went to the cross, was buried, and rose again. See, they believe that you could sin and still have eternal life because the spirit could deny sin even existed in your human body. John wrote this letter to help stop the spread of the plague of false teaching. We mentioned the purposes of this book, but we want to drill a little deeper in that. John had three main purposes in this book. He wanted, as we said, teach about genuine salvation. He wanted to take his readers back to the basics of Christianity. John speaks with certainty and with authority. Being a pastor, he always spoke, as you'll read through, in a very loving tone. He believed God the Father was intimately involved in the lives of his children, showing tenderness, love, and compassion. First John was written from the heart of a pastor with a concern for his people. 
He wanted his readers to have certainty. He wanted them to have hope and joy in their walk with Christ, even though they were seeing people leaving their church following false teachers. And John wanted to give a defense of the faith. John had no tolerance for those who distort the truth and infect the church with false teachings. In 1 John 4, he calls them false prophets. In 1 John 2 and 3, he talks about those who deceive. In 1 John 2, he talks about antichrist. In 1 John 4, he talks about demonic false teaching. We cannot be sure what false teaching the Apostle John was addressing, but appears whatever it was was challenging the incarnation of Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus was 100% God coming down to earth, wrapping himself in human flesh, and he was 100% man at the same time. This is a vital doctrine in the church. Jesus had to be 100% God to take the wrath of God on himself, to be without sin, to be called the Lamb of God, and to be an acceptable sacrifice to God for our sins. But he had to be 100% man because he had to be the substitute for us on the cross. So that's a key thing, and John is defending that throughout this book. The key cycle in 1 John is a proper belief in Jesus producing obedience to the commandments, and obedience brings in love for God and fellow Christ followers. You're going to see this cycle over and over and over again. He puts an emphasis on it through 1 John. He keeps coming back to it. Sound faith plus obedience plus love equals happiness, holiness, and security. That'd be a good thing to write down. Sound faith, knowing what you believe, the basics of Christianity, the fundamental beliefs, obedience. Jesus said, keep my commandments, and if you keep my commandments, you show that you love me. So you see sound doctrine, sound faith, obedience, love, equals happiness, holiness, and security, knowing that you are part of God's forever family. This is the litmus test of a true Christian. Now, what is a litmus test? You know, we got some people here who've been involved with science, but if you have a chemistry uh, experiment, you have a beaker with a solution in it, and they have these special strips that are designed to stick in, and what it does, it changes color to uh, determine the acidity of what's in the solution. And we call that a litmus test. It doesn't tell us the pH balance, but it tells us the amount of acidity. We think of a litmus test when we think of politicians. We have certain litmus tests that we want these politicians to uh, believe in and support before we're going to vote for them. John's saying here's the litmus test for what a believer is. Sound faith, obedience, love, bringing happiness, holiness, and security. Let's move to the first four verses of 1 John this morning as we introduce the opening of this book. 1 John 1, I hope you have your Bible there. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard and which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word. Let's bow for prayer as we continue to dig into God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's eternal. We thank you that every um, jot and tittle will come to pass. We thank you for how it works and transforms our lives. May we be open to what you have to teach us today as we look deeply into these four verses. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We see two things from the first four verses of 1 John. 1 John shares that he was an eyewitness for the evidence of Christ. He was an eyewitness. The eyewitness evidence for Jesus Christ. The deity of Christ and God's plan of redemption are proven by their eternality. In 1 John 1.1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, excuse me, concerning the word of life. Notice that phrase, that which is from the beginning. There's two thoughts here. The commentators are split on which one to do, but I think they both can bring valid points. First of all, one, that the gospel and God's plan of redemption were proclaimed from creation to now. That the gospel... The beginnings of creation, the beginning pages. In Genesis 3.15, we see God saying, I will put, speaking to the serpent, Satan, I will put hatred between you, Satan, and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, which would ultimately be Jesus Christ. And Christ will bruise your head, crush your head, but you, Satan, shall bruise his heel by crucifying him. We see the picture of redemption at the beginning. So he's saying that which is from the beginning, John said, could also be that Christ is eternal and was an integral part of the work of creation. In John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the Logos, which is Jesus Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Christ comes to reveal the heart and the mind of God to his creation. To know Christ is to know God. That's what John 1.1 says. And uh, as I was in Greek class, and they taught us where it says there, and the word was God. It's like the two entities sitting on a beam looking at each other. They are identical. To know Christ is to know God. In Colossians 1, 15, it says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and get this, and for him, for his glory, for his honor, for his power, as we sang about this morning. So we see the humanity of Christ is proven by eyewitness testimony as well. The humanity of Christ, we talked about the deity, but we see that he was flesh and blood, and and John attested that. He says, which we have heard in verse 1, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. John is stating his apostolic authority because of his personal and intimate involvement with Jesus Christ. John and the apostles experienced Jesus front and center in their lives. It says, we heard him. We heard what he said. We, we heard his teachings. He says, we saw him with our eyes. 
And that literally means they're seen on many occasions, not just once. It literally means there when it says looked upon to observe something with continuity and attention, often with the implication that what is being observed is something unusual to observe, to be a spectator of it, to look at it, to look on with admiration. That's what it means in the Greek. And then he says, touched with our hands. You remember that John leaned against Jesus' breast. You hear stories of them touching Jesus and and, and having that sense that he is a real person. John is giving eyewitness testimony of Jesus who's intensely personal and revealed who God was at his coming for the first time. The next thing we see in the end of verse 1 is the word of life provides the promise of eternal life. At the end of verse 1, and it leads into verse 2, he is the word of life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, was put on display so we could see it. The word of life, God's Son, who is the resurrection and the life, has the words that lead to life here on planet Earth, John 10.10. He said, I give you life, I want to give it to you more abundantly. And then eternal life, 1 John 5.13. These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. You might remember in John chapter 6, after Jesus had performed miracles and fed 5,000, and there was this large crowd of people following him, and he knew in his spirit that they were following because of the signs and the wonders and all the things that he had done for them. And he turns and he says, now will you just follow me for who I am? And it tells us in John 6.66, that's one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. It says, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Man, can you imagine? All these people are leaving, and then these people you've invested in, they may leave as well. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Notice what he says, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus has the words of eternal life. He is the word of life. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul said that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And get verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Hold fast to Jesus' words, to the apostles' teachings. John's gospel, if you read it in its entirety, is all about invitation. It's evangelism. It's inviting Gentiles to come to faith in Christ. The key verse in that gospel, when I preached through it a number of years ago, says that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John was an invitation. Now, 1 John is about an investigation, investigating the apostolic truths and holding fast and holding faithfully to them so that you will find joy that will last now and into eternity. 1 John is declaring the incarnation of Christ, the God-man. As we said, God putting on human flesh, walking among men to reveal who God the Father is and to show us the way to the Father. 
Read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And a while back, Austin preached a great message on that. It tells you what the details of the incarnation of Christ. John wants to proclaim the Christ that was on display for 33 years, that John had the amazing privilege to spend three years eating, sleeping, walking with, enjoying life with him. The application here is the physical and theological evidence for who Christ is is indisputable. It's indisputable. I love Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict. There's 365 prophecies of Jesus, and all the prophecies up to this point of Jesus have been fulfilled. That gives us assurance that who he is. I think of the uh, unbelieving historians who've come together and say there's 10 indisputable facts that we can't deny that Jesus literally rose from the dead in history, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again. There's so many ways that we can know through apologetics that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, with indisputable evidence. We see John's purpose in writing this book in verses 3 and 4, our last point today, the hopeful encounter that many people will develop a relationship with Jesus. That's the heartbeat of this pastor John in Ephesus, is that people will have fellowship with one another, but fellowship beginning with the Father. First thing he talks about, though, is the rich fellowship with other Christ followers. There's a story about a famous British writer, and he was uh, boarding a ship in Liverpool, England, and he was on the top deck looking over the rail, and he saw all these people waving to their loved ones as they were leaving on this trip. And no one was waving to him. So he saw a little boy down there just standing there. So he got off the boat and went to the boy and said, hey, if I paid you some money, will you wave at me when I'm up up on the ship? And the little boy gladly agreed. And so this famous writer got back up on the boat. And all of a sudden he looked over and there was that little boy waving at him that made him feel good. And it just displays how man is lonely and wants fellowship, wants connection. That's one of the basic needs of humanity. For Christians, we have genuine fellowship with God, but also with one another. Jesus promised, I am with you always to the end of the age. In this letter, John explains the secret of fellowship with God and other Christians. This is the first purpose John mentions for the writing of this letter, the sharing, the common sharing of experience of eternal life together. Look at verse 3, if you would, of 1 John 1. That which we have seen and heard as apostles, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. We see here that John is talking in this letter to fellow Christ followers. He's talking about the horizontal relationship with God's saints. Fellowship here means to have in common a mutual participation in a common cause and a shared life. Think about that. It's stories like that man on the ship who paid that little boy and others that we could share that cause us to want to proclaim to others the need to be part of God's family, to be part of a church family, a family who will faithfully be there for you. Then we see the rich fellowship with the God, the Father, and His Son. The Trinity. The fellowship of the three, rich fellowship. First John 3, the second part of that verse says, and indeed, 
Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John wants our vertical relationship with God to be one of sweet fellowship, to know the true Christ and make Him known, to stay true to God's Word and not stray away. The number one controversy that's going on in the evangelical church right now is holding to the fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to the Father. You realize there was a study done in August of 2021 among born-again Christians, over several thousands of them, and 70% of them say that you can get to heaven by believing in Muhammad, by believing in Buddha, by believing in anything that we are tolerant and we're pluralistic in our approach to get to heaven. And that's not what the Bible says. John wants us to stay true to the word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 14, 6, in Acts 4, 12, he says, there's no other name under heaven but Jesus that we call upon to be saved. And we have to stay true to that even if it costs us some relationships. We need to speak the truth in a loving way, but remind them, yes, Christianity is exclusive, but guess what? It's inclusive. Besides those two verses, there's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his son to die so that no one would perish, but all could come to a saving knowledge of Christ. In Romans 10, it says, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John, uh, Romans 10 says that we can confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and trust in him and proclaim him as Lord and know that he rose from the dead. We have eternal life. So it's not that it's an exclusive club, but it's open to anyone if they come to God on his terms. Well, the rich joy of the writers and teachers of the true gospel is our last point this morning. The rich joy of the writers and the teachers of the true gospel. In 1 John 1, 4, he completes this introduction. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John's readers were being strongly exposed to false teaching. That false teaching was designed to erode their confidence from what the apostles had taught them from the time of their salvation. The false teachers, they were very persuasive speakers. They rose up among them. They knew these people. They didn't have a written word like we do today. It was a new belief system that was only about 60 years old, this thing of Christianity, and this false teaching was causing divisions in the church family. John's goal with this book is to reaffirm basic truths of what it is to be a believer in Jesus Christ and have fellowship with God's people and our Heavenly Father. Karl Marx said the first requisite for the people's happiness is the abolition of religion. The Apostle John was saying, counter to that, faith in Jesus Christ gives you a joy that can never be duplicated by the world. And he's saying firsthand, I've experienced this joy myself and I want to proclaim it and share it with you. He felt like if this letter succeeded in its aim, the writer and believers will be filled with joy. Joy is given to us by God. Joy comes when we can see the spiritual growth in our lives and other people's lives. Joy is a wonderful byproduct of our relationship with Christ. Here's some promises promises of joy. John 15, 11, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Romans 14, 17. I really like this. I focused in on it this week. I hadn't thought of this verse in a long time. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, 
but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not found in the material things of this world. The application here is that John wants each Christ follower to be in horizontal fellowship. The word there is horizontal fellowship with fellow believers and in a vertical relationship with their heavenly Father. Horizontal and vertical, important. Here's our key thought. Fellowship with Christ enables fellowship with other Christ followers that leads to joy and eternal life. It leads to joy and eternal life. There was a young lady, her name was Linda, and she set out from Alberta to go to the Yukon. And the interesting thing was she was headed through some rugged terrain that only four-wheel drive vehicles would have, but she had a really old, dusty, beat-up Honda Civic, and she was going to go, and she was determined that she was going to go where only the four-wheel drive vehicles can go. Well, she made it as far as a mountain summit, and she found a room, and she spent the night there and asked for a 5 a.m. wake-up call so she could continue on her journey. And the, the, the guy at the desk kind of looked at her like, really? You think you can do that? And so when she woke up at 5 a.m., there was this thick cloud of fog all over the mountainside that happened pretty often there. So she was a little embarrassed. She went to breakfast, and there were two truck drivers there. And the two truck drivers asked her what she was going to do. And she says, I'm getting in my Honda Civic, and I'm headed to the Yukon. And they said, are you sure about that? And uh, they said, guess what? Here's what we're going to do. After breakfast, we're going to hug you. She's like, hug me? I don't even want you to touch me. They said, no, we don't mean that. We're going to put one of our 18-wheelers in front of you and one in back, and we will escort you through the mountain range to where you want to go. You know, it's exciting to think about as she followed those two little dots of taillights, knowing that she had confidence that there was backup behind her, that she could have safe passage wherever she went. You know, it's the same for you and I, as we have fellowship with one another, that we have people leading us, but we have people behind us as a church family in fellowship and encouragement when we're going through the darkest times, when we're going through the foggy, uncertain times, we don't know where we're going. It's great to have a church family, a fellow Christians that you could come alongside with and fellowship and have that connection and to be safe in this life. Here's some questions to ponder as we close today. Are you secure in your experience and understanding of who Jesus is? Make sure that you know Christ. You understand who he really is. There's lots of different teachings of who Jesus is out there in our culture but know who he is from the word of God. Second of all, can you express times of sweet joy because of the fellowship you've had with fellow Christ followers with someone this week? Share an experience with someone. Now, somebody came along and encouraged you, who sat there and listened to you as you, grieve, as you went through a time of grieving a loss or whatever it may be. And lastly, enjoying wonderful communion with Christ and your heavenly father through the Holy Spirit. We can get in a situation where our devotion time is dry, our personal worship, we just kind of go through it. But spark it anew and think of it as the relationship that this is God's love letter written to you for your personal life. Let's bow for prayer. As we pray today, I hope that you will reflect on your relationship with your Heavenly Father and to realize the privilege 
and the grace that God has given so you can have that relationship with him on a daily basis as you go about your day, not just in a time of personal devotion, but he's with us everywhere we go. And then also reflect on how important it is to have fellowship with fellow believers, whether within our church family, at your workplace, where you volunteer, wherever it may be. It's amazing through the Holy Spirit and the common salvation we have, the fellowship we can have. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the book of 1 John. We thank you for the certainty it gives us of the hope that's within us. And as we obey and we follow your commands and we love you more, we thank you for the joy that you pour out into our lives. May we, like the Apostle John, proclaim these truths to people that we come in contact this week and also revel in joy for what you have given us and not take it for granted. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.